0: I remember the moment, man, thinking to myself, wow, president of a software company can't write code, CEO of a publishing company can't spell. And and I was just like, man, God bless America. That's JT
1: McCormick, author, keynote speaker, president and CEO of Scribe Media, and a living example of how adversity can strengthen and define you.
0: And there was one page particular in my book that was incredibly freeing. It said, my name is Javon Thomas McCormick. I'm half white, half black. I have no college degree. I've got a GED in saying, hey, this is me and period point blank.
1: I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. JT McCormick is best known for his unbelievable story of overcoming seemingly impossible circumstances. Through the life experiences that have shaped him, He's learned the importance of maintaining perspective, particularly towards failure in both business and in life.
0: So the the phrase fell fast I think is complete bullshit. The goal is to learn faster. So for me, I believe you only fail if you stop trying.
1: That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney podcast. As entrepreneurs, we understand that there's a level of adversity and challenges that come with the territory. JT has a unique perspective on adversity, difficult circumstances, and most importantly, what it takes to succeed in the face of them.
0: I don't believe I overcame adversity. I believe adversity helped mold me to who I am now. I didn't overcome it. I, I worked through it. I took it in. I used it to become the person that I am today. So, you know, people will say stuff like, you know, when when all the odds were stacked against you, how how do you feel that you made it? Uh, Personally, I don't feel that the odds were stacked against me. I, I feel that the odds were in my favor. The things that I learned from the situations that I've gone through, those odds made me who who I am. So, uh, you know, here's another one, Michael. People say, well, you, you had every reason to fail, every reason not to be successful. I look at it different. I had every reason to be successful with the shit that I went through. If I wasn't successful, I blame no one but myself.
1: For those of you who might not know JT and his backstory, I asked him to dive a little deeper into his childhood, What was it like growing up in such challenging circumstances? And how did JT turn the unimaginable darkness he's been through into positive lessons he would eventually go on to apply in the business world?
0: I'm 48 years old. My father was a black pimp and drug dealer back in the 1970s. He put women on the street corner. They sold their bodies. And then my dad took took every dollar. And he fathered 23 children. I'm one of 23 And then my mother, she's white, so I'm I'm mixed race, half black, half white. My mother was raised in an orphanage until she was 17 years old. When she graduated high school, they gave her a small suitcase, 20 bucks, and they said, good luck to you, there's the world. And unfortunately for my mother, one of the first people she met was my well-dressed, fast-talking, pimp father. And so the the only reason to this day that I, I was born is my mother had an abortion the first time she got pregnant. And the abortion, it was illegal. And it was so bad that the second time she got pregnant with me, she took her chances on raising a child. So that's what I came into the world to. You know, my mother and I grew up on, on welfare. Poor. When, when I say poor, man, you've heard me make the joke. You know, we couldn't afford the O and the R. We were just po. Uh, You know, free lunch. I, I know all too well what it's like to eat out of a trash can, to have something to eat. I know all too well what it's like to eat lunch Friday afternoon at school, go to bed Friday evening, and you don't eat again until Monday afternoon when you get your free lunch again. So, yeah, I grew up poor man, in and out of juvenile three different times. Uh, I was sexually molested by my dad's prostitute from the ages of six, seven and eight. When I was eight years old, I specifically remember my dad's prostitute. She used to force me to have oral sex on her. And if I didn't do it right, she would slap me in the head uh, punch, you know, punch me and tell me to do it right. And I remember at eight years old developing perfectionism. And I remember saying to myself, okay, I am never going to be in a position where I don't know what to do. Now, the downside of that is there's no such thing as perfect. But I was always in pursuit of being perfect, because I never wanted to find myself in a position of not knowing what to do. So for for me on that, Michael, I look at a situation like that where most people will sit back, crawl under the covers, why me, get depressed, uh, but I can't change the past. I take the story and I make the most of it and figure out how I can find the positives and, and go from there, man. You can comfortably talk about this now, but I
1: imagine like, especially during those early days, I'm wondering what was driving you to uh, essentially make it through every single day? Because these are not easy things, especially as a child.
0: You know, survival, man, I believed there was something more. And and I'll say this, you know, we live in a society where everyone's always telling you what to do, telling you what to do, telling you what you can become, what what you can. Sometimes it's not what you tell someone. It's what you show them. And I remember at 10 years old, I was living in Houston, Texas. My father had moved the pimp game down to to Houston, Texas. He drove me through one of the most exclusive neighborhoods in in the country. It's uh, River Oaks. And it was the first time at 10 years old, I saw 10, 15, $25 million homes and these homes, one family lived in these homes and they were bigger than the projects that I grew up in. And it showed me possibility. And that became one of those game changing moments where I said, wow, I want one of those. I'm going to have one of those. And it became my mission of, okay, I saw it. Now I, I want to go achieve it. So I just always believed that there could be something different. I believed I could do something more in life. And, and I just kept pushing. It, it was survival. Don't don't give up. Don't you ever give up. Don't look back. Keep asking questions. Outwork everyone. And, and I got to thank my mother for this one. I, I'll share this with you, Michael. As a young kid, and I don't know if she was telling me for me or if she was saying it for herself, but my mother had said to me, one of the most selfish things you could ever do is commit suicide. And she said, because you may ease your pain but you leave all of those people who love you behind to deal with the pain and suffering and the loss that that you took your life. And so when things were really dark for me as a, as a kid, I always remember that because I, I'm not gonna sit here and lie. There were times where I'm like, okay,' I'm, I'm done. you know, things are just hard, I'm out, it's over. But I always remembered she she said that and I, I felt okay, I, I can keep going. And if someone else has done it, there's a belief in me that, okay, if someone else has got that house, then I can get one. And I developed this thing for for me, Michael, that first you have to love yourself. At the end of the day, if no one else loves you, no one else cares about you, love yourself, care about yourself. If you can do those two things, okay, then I have someone that believes in me, me. So for me, man, as Terrell Owens once said, I love me some me. <laughs>
1: So, so, Jay I have to ask, I mean, even even in the early days as you were going through these experiences now, these adversities have helped to shape you and strengthen you. And, and you mentioned you would not be the person you are today were it not for those experiences. But at the same time, I, I would imagine that many people, maybe even most, that would go through those similar types of experiences may not have come out the other end the same way that you did. What, what do you think made you different during that time?
0: You know, I look back at my my entire life, Michael, and there's Key points throughout, you know, for me, I was in juvenile three different times as a kid. The last time I was leaving juvenile, uh, one of the corrections officers pulled me aside. Big dude, big black dude. And he says, come here, son. And he gets down on one knee, points at me in my face. He says, if you ever come back here again, you're going to man prison. I'm 48 years old, man. I don't know what it is that, about the sound of man prison, but I don't know what man what goes on in man prison. So, you know, that was a, a pivotal key moment for me because I didn't want to go to man prison. So, then it it gave me a different shift of, okay, what are the things that I need to do to not go to man prison? And so academically, I'm not the smartest or brightest person in the world, but I found that, okay, I can outwork you. I can control my work ethic, but what do I have to do to not go to man prison?
1: Yeah. And over that time, I mean, how did your relationship with with your parents evolve?
0: I ended up back in Dayton, Ohio. I was living with my dad uh, and man, it was pure chaos. From the ages of, of nine to five, Fifteen, It was just chaos. And and it was interesting because that chaos is some of the most beneficial chaos I ever went through in life. But when I left Dayton, Ohio, I had not at 15. I never saw my dad again until his funeral. Now, when, when he passed away, it was th- over 35 years later, I went back to his funeral. I, I had never spoken to him again, never seen him. People will ask, is there, is there anything you would have liked your dad to have seen or what, what you accomplished, things of that nature? A lot of people assume it would be my family, you know, I have a wife and four kids. i like, no, my dad didn't. Obviously, if he had 23 children, he had no appreciation for family. So him seeing mine is not something that I would have wanted him to see. But about a year ago, 18 months ago, there was one thing that finally happened in my life that I would have wanted him to see. A CEO leadership magazine came out. And on the cover of this magazine, you had four-star General Petraeus. You had Heisman Trophy winner Bo Jackson. You had the billionaire hedge funder uh, Leon Cooperman. And you had JT McCormick on, on this magazine. But what was key to this is when I was a kid, my dad would always say to me, the only difference between him and his illegal drug and business and the CEO of Budweiser was our government chose to make one legal. And I never really understood it as a kid. You know, he would walk me through prohibition and tell me how, you know, alcohol was illegal one time in this country and how alcohol kills people and how alcohol is addicting. And he'd walk me through all these steps to show me that the only difference between uh, selling drugs and prostitution and, and uh, the CEO of Budweiser was our country just chose to make one legal, Fast forward, never in a million years did I believe that here we are as a country now starting to make weed legalized throughout the country. But on that magazine, what was key for me and what I would have liked my dad to have seen was I was on the cover of this this leadership magazine. But right above me was the CEO of Budweiser. I I believe he would have been proud. And when I saw it, man, I am man enough to admit, I, I cried. And I said to myself, well played, Dad, well played. And I I felt like he had a hand in that one.
1: Stories like this give you a sense of how JT is able to take what in many ways was a harrowing experience growing up and turn it into gratitude for what he's been through and how it's gotten him to where he is today. He's full of stories like that, of how lessons from his darkest days brought to light his true potential.
0: You know that my first job was cleaning toilets, and it's only been recently that I've come out and admitted this, because I never wanted to give my dad any credit. Michael, oh my God, man, this was so tedious. I had to look at a deposit slip and a computer printout, and I had to make sure the deposit slips matched the computer printout, and this was all I did for eight, nine hours a day. And finally, I got fed up, and I asked the manager, I said, okay how many reports have been proofed in a day? What's the record? And she said 42. I said, okay, great. Driving home that night, I said to myself, okay, tomorrow I'm going to smash that record. The next day I did 71. Then the next day I did 72. And then the owner called me up to his office and, oh man, Michael, he was a country hick guy. And he says, hell, Jovan, my real name's Jovan. Hell, son, what what do you want to do? And again, for me, man, I've always been and ask questions guy. The worst you can do, Michael, if I ask you right now, hey, Michael, will you give me the Ferrari? The worst you can say is no, that's it. Maybe F no, but the worst you can say is no. But what if you say yes? So when he asked me what do I want to do, he had this picture of him and the vice presidents behind his desk in his office. And I said, I want to be in the picture. And he said, "Hell, son, you got some balls on you. And I go, hey, you asked me what I want to do. But at 23 years old, I ended up with the opportunity of being the vice president of the Pacific Northwest and having three offices, all because I was willing to put in the work and outwork everyone ask questions, ask for what I want. So I've never been afraid to put in the hours, put in the work, do every, do whatever someone else isn't willing to do, I'll do it. You, Michael, if you say, take out the trash, I'm gonna ask you, where are the trash bags? I'm not gonna sit there and say, that's not my role. I don't get paid for that. That's not my job. I will do whatever I need to do to be successful. So that's really been the mantra of my career. And And to fast forward to your point, When I was at the software company, I was the lowest paid person. There were 13 of us. I sat on a fold-out metal chair in a storage closet making my sales calls. And I didn't always know what I was selling or how to sell it. But, damn it, I knew I was going to get through and get people on, on the phone. And one of the proudest things for me before I joined the company the company had done about two and a half million, close to three million in revenue prior to me joining. They had been around for eleven years, and my first nine months, I signed over a million dollars in in business, and so that that became a very proud moment for me. And then within two years, I became the president of the company. And man, I, I just I'm willing to work, man. I'm willing to ask questions. Did you
1: at any point during this time ever you know struggle with almost like this? Imposter syndrome. I find a lot of the successful people I speak with, They, even when they find themselves succeeding, they, in their mind, are always thinking, well, the gig is almost up. Did you ever feel any of that?
0: Oh, man, all the time. Really, I would say up until about two years ago, there was always a big imposter syndrome with me because most people, at least if they have imposter syndrome, they can fall back and and say, oh, I I got a degree. I got a master's degree, man. I had no academic credentials. I was the son of of a pimp. And drug dealer, I don't know where my last name comes from. You know, a lot of people can at least uh, hang their hat on, you know, hey, my last name's Rockefeller or I was b- part of the Ford fan. Like, there's areas where you can hang your hat. Man, I mean, I have anything. So, yeah, imposter syndrome was just rampant with me. I never wanted people to figure out or find out who I was. Man, Michael, I couldn't hold a relationship, man. I sucked in relationships. I was a monster. And I didn't want people to know those things because, who, who's going to believe in that guy? Who's going to want to hire that guy and work with that guy. So until about two years ago, big time. I mean, and then, and then I go off and become the president and CEO of a publishing company. Can't spell, can't tell you an adverb from an adjective. Man, you talk about imposter syndrome.
1: <laughs> so you mentioned something happened two years ago where a lot of this changed. What, again, this is even new to me. What, what would you say that was?
0: So I was at the software company We had grown the company, everything you said, you know, storage closet to offices in Austin, Houston, Dallas, Monterey, Mexico, just really blew the company up and it was awesome. Key to that, I was surrounded by some really smart people. At the time I only had two children and I was traveling a lot. And I said, oh my God, if something happened to me, my children would not know where I came from. So I set out on this mission to to do my book and I never wanted my book to be public Never wanted anybody to read my book. I needed five copies just to be passed down for a legacy piece for my children. So I got introduced to Tucker and Zach, the the co-founders of Scribe. Tucker comes over to the software company. We sit down. I give him my story. And he goes, "Yeah, I believe you got a book in you. And so uh, from there, we're getting up. And we were sitting in this massive uh, conference room. And he says to me, hey, when you go through our process, can you give me feedback? You've built a great company here. And I said to him, I go, no one person builds a great company. I don't care whose name is, is on the door. It, it takes a, a crew of talented individuals to build, build a great company. So I said, yeah, I'll give you feedback. Long story short, I started giving him feedback, and then he invited me to be an advisor for the company. Then he invited me to sit in on an executive meeting. Then he and Zach said, hey, if if we give you equity in the company, would you come be the the, the CEO? And I said, and I remember the moment, man, thinking to myself, wow, president of a software company can't write code, CEO of a publishing company can't spell. And, And I was just like, man, God bless America. So, what got me over here was doing that book. And then as we were doing the book, more and more people throughout our tribe were reading it. And they said, JT, you got to make this public. You got to you got to share this. Oh, Michael. I'm like, oh, hell no, no way. And finally, through a lot of conversations, a lot of support, I said, okay, I'll, I'll make my book public. And there was one page particular in my book that was incredibly freeing. It said, my name is Javon Thomas McCormick. I'm half white, half black. I have no college degree. I've got a GED. Uh, And and it really just went through who I am and accepting it and saying, hey, this is me and period point blank. So now, yeah, uh, as far as the imposter syndrome, there are times still where I'm like, damn, how, how did I see that? How did I know that? How did I figure that out? But the being an imposter, nah, I I actually feel that there's more people with these so-called credentials who are imposters than the people who actually can drive results and do the work. It's easy for people to
1: blame external circumstances for why they can't succeed. But in JT's experience, there's simply no excuse to not get where you want to
0: go. I had someone the, the other day, Michael challenged me. They said to me, well, JT, it's not that easy. And I go, I never said it was easy. And they go, well, I live in a community where there's not a lot of opportunity. And I said, oh, well, that is easy. And I said, "One word fixes that? And they said, well, what? I go, move. <laughs> and so it, it's sometimes don't make the situation difficult. And then they said, well, it's not that easy. My family lives here, blah, blah, blah. I never said it was easy. Some of the the greatest successes come from the hardest decisions that you make in life. And sometimes you got to move. You, you got to you have to do the, the hard things in life. You know, I've sacrificed a, a lot of time. I, I don't believe you have to suffer to be successful, but I damn sure do believe you have to sacrifice to be successful. Be it time with your family, be it personal things that you may like, you are going to make some sacrifices if you want to be successful.
1: Our experiences and upbringing can vary. So what if you haven't gone through JT level adversity yourself? How do you maintain a perspective of gratitude?
0: so many people will approach me with that, well, JT, I don't have the story you have. I don't have the background you have. Okay. I'm like, well, shit, not many people do. But but the fact of the matter is there's people who have uh, stories that are far worse than mine. A lot of people have this, this assumption with me that I will dip back to my own struggles of adversity and that helps push me through. It's actually not. When I look to be inspired or I look to push myself. I just look at what's going on in the world right now. I look at the the single mom who's walking 1100 miles from Honduras trying to get into this country to create an opportunity for herself and and her children. You know, I, I look to that and I say to myself, man, on my worst day, of being in juvenile on my worst day of being sexually abused on my worst day of being left and being homeless i've never had to face walking 1100 miles to try to get into this country that i don't speak the language and have to feed my two children so i look at current situations and unfortunately you know we we get so caught in our own bubbles we get so caught in, oh my God, me, me, me. And and the day is hard, whatever. I run this thing for myself personally. I call it the one mile radius rule. Go stand outside your house, go stand outside your office. And within a one mile radius, somebody will change places with you. And so that's, that's really how I look at pushing myself through what's hard, what's going on. It's it's not dipping back into the stories of how I grew up. I just look at what's going on in the world right now. You know, the person who can't afford to pay the rent this month, the person who can't pay their mortgage, the person who can't get through the unemployment website to get a check. And they're sitting there like, oh, my God, how am I going to feed my two kids? I got laid off. I got two kids. I'm a single parent and I can't get unemployment. What am I going to do Think about that for a second and then look over and, and think about whatever problem you may be facing. It kind of puts it in perspective.
1: Now, let's say there's somebody listening to this right now that is dealing with a significant amount of pain. they have had a very difficult life. Maybe it's an experience that they've already had previously. But I'm curious, at what point did you transition from viewing these adversities as just why me to then ultimately leveraging them as, as strengths, if you will, to actually then being comfortable talking about them publicly?
0: I've always been thankful for what I do have versus on focusing what I don't have. And so I'm big on gratitude. And again, really two, three years, I've been open to, to sharing that. But my mom gave me this. When I was a kid, and I know she would do this to try to make me feel better, she would always say to me, there's someone worse off than we are. She always said that to me. And my mother, you know, we, we survived. We, did, we didn't live. We just survived. But what always pissed me off about that comment, Michael, when, when she would say, you know, there's someone worse off than us, man, even as a kid, I, I remember I was a smart ass. I would always say to her, Yeah, but there's people better off than we are too, and I'm gonna focus on them. <laughs> so, but it's it's always been around me, man, to to realize there's someone in a worse position than than I am. And we we all have heard this. This is very inspirational for me. We've all read the stories of of an immigrant who's come to this country with 45 cents in their pocket, uh, only to find out years later they became a, a multimillionaire. My attitude, man, again, on my worst day, I was born here. I was born in the United States. I already have a leg up and I'm already ahead of you because I was born here. So, you know, right now you see so many people talk about privilege, privilege, and then it's turned race, you know, white privilege, white privilege, and me being half white, half black. I don't look at it from a race angle. I look at it as, okay, what am I privileged to have? Okay. I am mentally well, all my, my arms and legs work, great privilege. I was born here in the country. Hell, that's privilege. Uh, So I don't look at race of who's privileged and who's not I look at okay I'm at the game period maybe the game's harder for me maybe I'm starting from a different seat I don't care as long as I'm here I was born in the states I'm at the game that's that's all I needed everything else. I'll figure it out and I'll make it happen. I'm not going to use my time and bitch about who uh, who's ahead of me and Michael's family, you know, comes from a two parent home and he's a legacy uh, Harvard grad. Ah, I don't care. What do I need to do? Because whatever you did is is not going to help me. I got to figure out what I need to do. I wish I went to Harvard.
1: You know, uh, actually, actually, I'll tell you what, I'm envious of you. I, I, I look back at this and, and I almost wish I did not go at all to, to college because whenever I hear, okay, either someone did not go to college or college dropout, I'm like, oh, man, like, what, what could I have done during those years? But over the years, obviously, now you, you've experienced a tremendous amount of business success. And, and I would almost argue that, you know, these days, pretty much anything JT touches, it's almost like the Midas touch, if you will.
0: You know, how did you develop that business acumen over the years? Man, I figured out for me, what are your five pillars? And I boiled my life down to what do you want to focus on? One of the greatest things that ever happened to me is when I lost all my money and I had managed to, to save up in the in the market, my 401k investing, and I had managed to, to make a million dollars, but then I lost it all. Did things that didn't help me make that money, did things that I I shouldn't have been doing, broke. And then I had to look in the mirror and realize, wow, you had a lot of money, but you still had a a horrible character. You just were not a good person. You weren't a good man. And so I had to say to myself, okay, money's gone, but your character's still here. Who do you want to be now? So I focused on on my character in in attempting to become the best person I could. And, And man, don't get me wrong, still made a ton of mistakes after that moment. But the focus was always, how do I improve? How do I get better? And that's really how everything in life has been for me. Right now, the way I do that is I take my life into five pillars. God, health, family, business, and investing. If it doesn't fall within those five pillars, I don't do it. You know, I, I love football. I love college football. But man, unless Tom Brady is sending me part of that $25 million contract, I really don't care. And so I I choose to focus on the things that are going to help me move the needle as a person. I'm in an incredible position that I found my lane. I love business. I love all things business. I don't care what your product or service is. All businesses have the back end of what I call the business of business. And you got to put people first. Then you got to have process, then you can focus on the profits. And I believe you put them in those three orders people, process, profits, you can build a a successful company. So I've just found the lane that works for me. I, I love all things business, I love studying how Sears manage themselves out of business. I love studying about Robert Johnson, the guy who is credited for Apple retail. This guy has been celebrated. Oh, Apple retail, Apple retail. And man, man, I really want him to listen to this. What I've never figured out is if you go into an Apple store and he's credited for this phenomenal experience, Apple stores are a box with tables, and iPads and phones on the tables. That's it. Where, why were you credited with this ultimate experience when there's really no experience? There are associates that will help you. They'll, they'll get the, the, the phone for you. They'll do all those things. It's a very minimal experience. And you saw when he got cocky and tried to go over to JCPenney, his ass was gone in 16 to 18 months because he really didn't create an experience. It was a box with, with product. People didn't go in there because they wanted an experience. People went in there because they wanted an iPhone. The box itself provides a better experience than the damn store does. So I, I've just always been fascinated by business, the decisions that are made, why people make those decisions to you know be a successful or an unsuccessful uh, decision. As president
1: and CEO of Scribe Media, JT led the organization to being named the number one company culture in America by Inc. Magazine. I asked JT, what are some of the top factors that he believes earned this company a reputation like that?
0: We call ourselves a tribe. You know, it's a team. It's a tribe. It's a group effort. There's never one person. But you always, if your principles and values are what they are. You have to live by those. You, you've heard so many people have said this. It can't just be some shit you have on the wall. You have to keep them top of mind. You have to pe- treat people respectful. You know this about me. You will never, ever hear me say my team. Eliminate the words I and my unless you're taking responsibility for a mistake. That's it. But when we're talking about success, oh, it's it's team effort. My three rules of leadership. Surround the company with people far smarter than yourself. Surround yourself with people far smarter than yourself. And then rule number three, repeat rules one and two. That's pretty much the the way this goes down. Find your lane, know what you're, you're good in, and really empower and delegate and trust those people that you're around. Teach, coach, and mentor. We don't train anybody. You know this. I you know, you train dogs, you train horses, you train your body, but we teach coach and mentor people. And, and for me, the goal is you know it before we started started this podcast. I want to teach coach and mentor myself out of a role where people don't even need me. It's it's so awesome to see things get executed on that I wasn't a part of, that that have been successful, because that to me is the true role of the CEO is for me to move obstacles, move hurdles, teach, coach, and mentor other people to where now I'm just a, a sounding board to help us grow as an organization.
1: So I'm wondering when you when you just described, I mean, surrounding yourself with people that are that are smarter, perhaps more skilled, maybe even better looking than ourselves. But why is it the business <laughs> business leaders, they they like it's almost like Many know what they're supposed to do. Why do so many struggle with actually doing them?
0: People can't get out of their own way. And and people get caught up on titles, roles, credentials. You know, I'm the founder and I'm the CEO. And okay, great. Well, you could always be the founder. Doesn't mean you need to necessarily be the CEO. And some people can't get out of the way. They feel the need to be the smartest person in the room and in the moment you feel that you need to be the smartest person in the room your company will never scale you you are going to be a broken company uh, as long as you're in business so you got a lot of ego that goes into it a lot of arrogance and a lot of fear a lot of imposter syndrome goes back to what we talked about people feel like well wait a minute if i bring in people who are smarter than me they're going to realize i don't know the answers good Let's identify that you don't know the answer so we can figure out how do we grow? How do we continue to get better and improve? That, in my opinion, is where so many people won't ask for help, don't want to be embarrassed, afraid of looking dumb, and really to push that a step further, Michael, that's the reason why one of our principles is ask questions. So many of us have worked at places where you can get fired for asking questions. You can get fired at Scribe for not asking questions because if you're so prideful that you didn't want to ask a question because you feared looking dumb this isn't the place for you.
1: So as we come full circle, I, I'm curious now given your upbringing, given where you started in life to now not only being the CEO of Scribe, at this point we are one of the fastest growing companies in America. You've got your family, four children. I mean, you're you're featured in Forbes, all these different places. I mean, I,
0: are you proud? Like <laughs> This actually happened a week ago, Michael. I was uh, going through a a therapy session uh, with my executive coach. Uh, He's an ex Navy SEAL. And he said to me, go back to a time period in your life of where you would like to talk to yourself. And what would you tell yourself? He said, first, what's the age? And I knew immediately it was nine years old because that's when really things just derailed for me in, in life. And he said, okay, what would you say to your nine-year-old self? I remember how hard I was. Don't you ever fucking give up. Don't you ever look back. Keep going. Keep asking questions. Don't you ever, ever give up. And you work your ass off. Never. And and then we paused. And he said, did you hear how you talk to yourself? I said, yeah. He said, would you talk to your five-year-old son that way? And I go, no. And he goes, so when do you look at yourself and realize, okay, you don't have to be that hard on yourself anymore. And that really hit me because in in many ways, I was still treating myself like the nine-year-old who had to get out of that. And that's not my my life anymore. Uh, You know, my life is I've got to Incredible wife. I've got four healthy children. I mean, even right now, man, I've got my computer facing out. I'm looking outside. There's a pond in my backyard. I'm watching the ducks. I live in a gated community. To your point, you know, our our company was named, you know, one of the best, the number one best company culture in America. Uh, We've not had to lay any people off during this virus disruption. Man, I am incredibly blessed. And I'm in an incredible position in life, but yeah, it's, I am successful. That's something myself and my executive coach work on. He makes me say that I I am successful, but it took damn near 47, 48 years. I'm 48 years old now to, to admit that, man, it's been a ride.
1: Do you have any regrets,
0: man? I I do my best to not live in regret. I have some remorse. For some situations that I was in, how I treated some uh, women, how I treated people in, in relationships, I had some remorse. I do my best to not have any regrets because even in those remorseful situations, I learned how to become better. I learned, oh, that wasn't good. Don't do that. And, and, and I'll share this last piece with you know this uh, about me. I truly, in my heart, believe you only fail if you stop trying. And so I don't do fail fast. I mean, hell, my whole life I've been trying to learn faster. So the the phrase fail fast, I think, is complete bullshit. The goal is to learn faster. So for me, I believe you only fail if you stop trying. So I've got a lot of failed relationships because we broke up. We're not together anymore. But as far as business and, when you know, first-time president of a software company, oh, my God, the mistakes I made. But... The goal is to learn, grow, and not repeat those mistakes.
1: And as we come to a close, obviously, this is the Game Changing Attorney podcast. You're certainly a game changer in your own right. What what does being a game changer mean to you?
0: Don't be a sheep. Don't be a follower. If someone said, what do I attribute some of my success to? I'll question everything. You know, why why are things done a, a certain way? When I first got to scribe, The way we used to do a manuscript for our our authors was we would do the interviews, get all the content, and then we would disappear for six weeks and then come back and give the manuscript to the, the author. And again, I'm not a writer. Tucker has sold millions on top of millions of books. I'm surrounded by people who have gone to Harvard and Ivy League schools that are writers. And I challenged it. And I said, why do we do it that way? I said, that makes no sense to me. And they go, what do you mean? Well, if you give me a manuscript that you disappeared on six weeks, if I read the intro and it's garbage. I'm never going to make it to chapter 12 because in my mind, the whole book is going to be garbage. So I said, why don't we do this in pages? Let's do a few pages. Let the author preview it. Let's do a chapter. Let the author, author preview it. And I got so much pushback, especially because here comes the guy with a with GED out of software coming in challenging traditional ways that things have been done. And it took time, but then everyone was like, wow, this shit's so much better, this works. So for me, the, the game changer is don't be a follower. What can I do different? Question everything, As, not, not to be an ass, but question to understand, to learn, to grow, to improve. You know, for, for me, I wanna go out like Charlie Munger. Charlie Munger's like 96 years old, speaking his mind. I mean, his glasses are so thick, I swear he can see the future, but he's still out there looking to learn and grow and improve. And so, for me, the game-changing advice guidance I would give would would don't be a fo- don't be a follower. Don't buy into the work-life balance shit. If if you're one of those people who are on uh, social media 53 minutes a day, the average person's on social media 53 minutes a day. Do you know the shit that I can learn in 53 minutes a day? So don't don't be a follower. Do it different.
1: I want to give a huge thank you to JT for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated for me was when JT mentioned the importance of maintaining perspective. You know, at any given time, no matter how bad things are, there's always someone who would love to trade places with you within a one mile radius. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with JT McCormick, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit gamechangingattorney.com. And join us next time when we'll be speaking to the heavenly hitter, Glenn Lerner. So just cause business has gone down, you're gonna cry. You figure out how to reinvent yourself. Life's about adapting. Adversity breeds opportunity. And I think we're gonna be so much bigger, stronger, and faster when this thing's over.
0: We're just looking to steamroll places now.
1: That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast.